Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Ono Sullivan and today's guest on the podcast is Aina Brennan, aka Dowry. If you listened to the Paddy Hanna episode of The Point of Everything a couple of episodes ago, towards the end you would have heard Paddy raving about Aina's work on his album, which I've constantly been saying it's probably my favourite of the year so far. It's called Frankly I Mutate. Aina is responsible for the strings and lots of other things on the album but the strings is the most obvious thing uh, that comes to mind and so I thought why not talk to Aina herself about her work with Paddy about her work with Tandem Felix and about Dowry itself how it started how it's kind of gotten to this point where she's playing like almost a festival every week this summer Uh, it's been quite the journey over the past couple of years and it's reflected in the dates that she has coming up um What's first? Well, she was at Knockin' Stockin' last weekend in Blessington. It's a festival that I've never been to, and I really, really would like to go. It sounds like it's one of the best in Ireland. Uh, she's playing a night called Cunis in Connollys of Lep on August 2nd. She's playing Castle Palooza in Tullamore on August 5th. Another love story in Meath in, on August 17th. I think tickets are all sold out for that. You can hear my chat with Emmett Condon of Homebeat and Another Love Story from last year before Another Love Story 2017, which was a really great festival. I wondered, I bet that interview holds up a year later. So that's fine. Fresh content. Fresh content. She's playing Other Voices at Electric Picnic in Stradbally on August 31st. Tickets are sold out for that as well. Is it Dowry or is it the festivals? Hmm... It's doing 12 Points Festival, which we get into a little bit on the um, podcast as well. We talk a little bit about what's involved there. That's uh, in the Sugar Club in Dublin on September 7th. And then she's playing the new Quiet Lights Festival on September 8th, organized by Jonathan Pearson, who's also been on this podcast about two years ago. Now, Quiet Lights sounds like it's going to be a really, really good uh, festival. And she's also playing... Uh, in Whelan's for the inaugural another new festival festival we've only just begun which is on August 10th to 12th that's a really good lineup a DJ set from Wyvern Lingo Kathy Davy, Ships Dowry, Molly Sterling Bitch Falcon, Girlfriend Sork Richardson and Roe all playing over the course of the weekend across two stages at Whelan's it's going to be good so yeah, let's get into it with uh, Aina Brennan and Dairy. She was in Trinity Library while we were doing the podcast and I was frantically trying to get my stuff working before I had to catch a bus in the rain. So uh, that's the that's the setup. That's so you know the atmosphere that's in our separate rooms as we recorded this podcast. So this is Aina Brennan and Dairy on the Point of Everything podcast. So... It's a busy summer for Aina Brennan and Dowry and all of your various guises, right? It is. It's good busy. It's good, good busy. I'm excited. Does this make a big change from like how you've usually found like your summers playing with bands? It seems like every week, like every couple of days you have like another show in like something. Yeah, it's ha- it, it is different in the way that like in the last, I don't know, in the last five years, I've been used to the summer being full of performances, but it's never been my own stuff. So the big difference between any of the performances I've done in, in the past has been that it's always been session stuff or, you know, I've been part of an ensemble or a band, but it hasn't been my own project. So I've had busier summers, like if you look at literally just like the dates needed to play music. But I think for me this summer 
because it's my own baby and it's my own project, it's, it's, you know, it's a different type of musical performance for me. So like all the festival appearances that I have, I have more weight on them or I'm putting more weight on them. And, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like it's less just having fun, but just treating it as kind of work. Um, like even I was, I was billed for a few Sundays at festivals and in my mind I was like, oh no, can't go on the set <laughs> because I was thinking, oh, well, you know, now I have to sing. Whereas before I would have just been playing violin and there's just, you know, there's maybe a bit more pressure on making sure that I nail every performance because it's, it's going to be on my head. So I think that consideration is definitely a part of it this summer. You know, it's not just, oh yeah, I get to go to these festivals for free, but it's more, okay, these are going to be handy ways of getting more people to hear my music that wouldn't have heard it before. And is that coming from like experience? Have you had like a bad gig where you're just like, oh no, what am I doing up here? I'm like not not into it at all. Not necessarily. It's more that I think I. It's the more you play festivals, the more you play shows, the more you kind of fear and sanity and health have to separate the. This is good fun, and this is my social life. To this is me trying to build a career and I'm on the job you know like I think sometimes those lines are blurred and one can maybe one can hinder the other in the sense that if you're too serious about it and you're not letting yourself have a good time then you know why are you doing it at all but then say in the circumstance where I go down to a festival on a Friday sleep in a tent for two nights maybe don't get much sleep and then have to perform on a Sunday I actually have kind of you know not really given myself the best opportunity to excel in that performance because I've maybe like given more priority to the overall experience instead of making sure that you know that half hour slot is going to be the best that I can do. I, I, I remember seeing a band on stage and like you know it was their own show and it was in a small venue in like September or October after festival season but they were yeah. still kind of in their fe- in their festival heads you know like okay. hands over their head trying to get a clap along and it was just like not working it was like oh guys this this isn't the space they're like completely different shows have yeah. you found that with the festival shows that you've put on that like the crowds are different to like the ones in the small venues oh definitely like I think I was nearly a bit more afraid of festival performances than I would be of a you know within four walls show because people are there for the crack and there to see maybe other people, not you. So they can just walk away. If they come up to your stage and maybe, you know, have heard you from afar and have been intrigued and they come see you, they can just decide to go see something else if it doesn't float, your, you know, their boat. Whereas in a venue, you paid in, you know, you might be there for another act if it's a support slot that I'm playing or something, but, you know, they'll give you your time. So I think that's a very cynical way of looking at it, but it, that put a lot of... Uh, I think that put pressure on me or I allowed that to maybe put a bit of pressure on me of really thinking about how to play a set for a crowd like that um you know there obviously is the the um, percentage of people who are going to see you on the bill and be like oh I've heard of her before I really want to go check her out and I'm going to be there for the full 30 minutes but you've got to use the opportunity of trying to get people to want to see you again after a festival performance if they've never seen you before so the way that I would then think about my set is you know how do I make it varied how do I also not make it too quiet I know that's a weird thing to say but literally at a festival you could be competing with the music on a stage that's not that far away from you 
So it's like, how do you make sure that you can retain focus and not suffer in that environment, you know? Um, so there's definitely considerations there by all means. But then even like, even different venues in Dublin or wherever I've played, you know, there's different considerations of, you know, who else is on the bill or what's the size of the venue or what time you're playing. Like all of those considerations also make every gig different even when they're in a venue. So it's just another, I think a festival is just another version of that. And like, do you think of um, playing or, or making your own songs for a festival show? Like, has that actually happened yet where you're thinking like, oh, I'm going to make this like a real clap along favorite or something? I think that would be kind of, I don't know if that's really my buzz because I don't know if I have songs that have like big hooks, for example. Like I know the structure, the way that I write material um, is is quite specific. So say, for example, in a piece where I'm looping violin and the layers are building and building and building, I don't know, I don't think there's a way an audience would enjoy it uh, specifically to a festival that they would in a different venue. So... I can't, if anybody ever claps along to my music anytime soon, their hands are going to be exhausted by the end because they'll be like, oh, this is a 10 minute song. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know, that, that scenario hasn't happened yet. But um, yeah, I don't think it's more the adaptation of the material. I don't think I've written material ever for a very specific context. It's more that you adapt the material you have for the context. So I'll have a song and it might have different versions of itself, but I wouldn't necessarily write for a circumstance, if that makes sense. Have you been kind of almost surprised at how successful the Dowry project has been? That like you are getting slots on all of these festivals for kind of something that's a little bit different to the usual um, stuff on the lineup? Oh, yeah, by all means. Imagine if I was like, no, I think it's very well deserved. <laughs> um, no, of course I am. Like, it, I, it felt very risky starting a solo project um, because I admire so many, um, you know, of my colleagues um, and friends who are musicians who have solo projects or, you know, have ventures that are far more developed than mine are. So it, it felt daunting to start from scratch. Um, but I think what, what I'm definitely very grateful for um, is that I have been involved as a session player um, for years now. So... I didn't necessarily start from scratch, not knowing anybody and not knowing kind of the work that's being made at the moment. So I've de I'm definitely grateful for being a part of the community, um, which has helped me enormously. Like people have given me opportunities to perform um, based off faith, you know, kind of knowing who I am and the, and the music that I play with other people. There's been a faith there of, OK, well, I'll book you, even though, you know, you haven't any releases out and all I have is kind of word of mouth. Um, but, you know, let's see what you do. And I think for a while I kept just getting the next show from the last one. Um, like there was very little forward planning. Um, I wouldn't really know how far in advance I would have gigs. So to be honest, it's only really this summer that I felt, you know, if you want to use the term success, it's only now that I'm feeling that, okay, there's, there's prospect here. Um, because I was taking every gig as it came because all I knew was I had one, one coming up. So I never had a whole rake of shows ahead of me. Um, so because of that, I guess, you know, you have to kind of, you never know if it's going to be some, a, a type of music that people really want to continue listening to. Like it could turn around and next week they were like, oh, we're kind of like tired of that sound now. So I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, it's, 
I think it's very hard to think that you've reached a level because like if you think of it in levels or like you know notches on a ladder of where you are in your career musically because you're constantly thinking ahead and there's always more to be done really so but I'm tremendously grateful for everyone wanting to actually hear my tunes so that's great and so when did Dowry actually start like did did it only start in the past year or was it kind of something that preceded your work with other acts it officially it kind of is very funny I had it on my brain for a while um like I've been writing songs um as a hobby uh for quite a bit um like what I treated as my more serious work was was compositions that I was writing for other people or arrangements that I was doing like that's what I saw as my kind of musical career and then any material that I wrote that could be deemed a song or something I would just perform myself was always just kind of throw away and you know hobby of a hobby but um I remember thinking oh I should probably just try and do something with this instead of having like a a load of voice memos and demos sitting on my computer Um, so the Christmas of like 2015, I remember being in my grandparents' house up in Sligo and it was like uh, New Year's Eve and I just decided to make a Facebook page called Dairy and I think I had, the moniker had come to me anyway, so I had that. So I thought that was like the first battle of figuring out what the hell you were going to brand yourself Um, because I knew it wasn't going to be my name. But once I had the word, I just literally made a Facebook page on January 1st, 2016, and then was like, okay, world, I'm going to do this now. And because I told people it meant that I actually had to do it. You know, it was like, that was now an incentive to deliver. And and so, like, what was the first, like, diary uh, gig or opportunity or thing that you actually got? Did it happen quickly? I think I put up a few demos on SoundCloud. So I think the way people might have heard me first was just through me putting up those demos, aforementioned demos that I had sitting on my computer. So, and I've done this with compositions before where I've just thrown things up and just kind of needed a bit of instant satisfaction of somebody at least clicking like, like, or, you know, just, or somebody messaging me, me being like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and I know, you know, that's, you shouldn't be following the likes and things, but I think at that, at that point when I was just starting out, I was like, oh God, is anyone going to like this? So this is beyond, this is before any, any mic was placed in front of me. Um, but then I think the first few gigs were open mic nights. So I just went, I had a friend who was organizing, um, a night called every second Wednesday. And would you believe it was on every second Wednesday and it was in Ned's in Dublin. So I did a few of those and literally just went up and sang two or three songs, looped a bit of violin and got the nerve I had awful nerves like it was it was more of a confidence thing for me to just do that in the corner of a pub with with a few friends there at the corner going like woo woo um just to make sure that it was something I'd actually have any enjoyment doing live um but then I think after that the first proper gigs were a, f- a couple of gigs I did with Keelan Sherlock and he yeah he came up to Dublin and we did a gig in 34 that cafe that um, Homebeat runs, or used to run anyway. Uh, it was a beautiful spot on Lennox Street. Um, and they used to have just gigs, like I think it was one Saturday a month. Um, and I asked Emmett if, you know, if he'd be interested in having me and Keelan. And so we did that. And then Keelan organised something in Gulped down in Cork. So that was nice because Keelan was just starting to do his solo stuff. And I think he was still going as St. Keelan, or sorry, Keelan Sherlock and not necessarily St. Keelan. So I just remember we'd been chatting about the fact that we were both 
starting our own solo stuff. So we were like, okay, will, will we do this together? Will we try and like show our new material to the world together and just see how things go? So it was nice having a partner in crime to, to do that with. It's interesting that you talk about like putting the demos up on SoundCloud straight away and kind of like the search for gratif- like instant gratification. Like I've yeah. been thinking about this recently. I think I don't think that it's good for a young band to have you know like that you can be in like your first ever band and you can record music and instantly put it up on Spotify and yeah. it's kind of like it it almost defines you in a way straight away or or something like that. I I don't know if uh I I would recommend that to bands like do you would you like recommend that as something that you should put your stuff up online and see what it's like but don't think of it as like a permanent thing oh well I think I had a very specific reason for doing it and those demos are nowhere to be seen anymore uh, I'll, I'll add like they are they are marked as private and they will remain so um so for me I think it was a case of putting things up initially when no one would ever you know, there is no cause for anyone to happen upon me online. It was only going to be if I sent people material or if, you know, I think I was only putting the link on Facebook to be like, hey, friends, anybody want to have a listen and let me know what they think? Or I was sending the links to specific people um, and asking their kind of constructive criticism. So I think for me, it was more of a writing tool and just making sure that what I was doing wasn't, I don't know, that, that it was not necessary I don't know if the term is necessary but at least that it wasn't just uh in that no one had indifference to it let let me put it that way so I I would suggest to bands that whatever way you do it it's handy to try and get feedback so for me it was a feedback tool and I think I would never put something on Spotify that wasn't that I wasn't completely 100% proud of and wanted to be part of my body of work but I think SoundCloud is handy because it's um, a platform that doesn't necessarily, you know, it's, it, there's a broad spectrum on there. You wouldn't go on, it's not your first protocol to find releases from people, but a lot of people put up things that are work, work in progress or remixes or just, you know, fun little, um, I don't know, things that they're working on, you know, that they don't take too seriously. So I think for me, that's, that's why I used it in that way. I mean, I would, and I would suggest to people that, you know, it worked, it worked for me, so maybe it works for somebody else, but I think you're right in that there's definitely, there's definitely a line there that you don't want it to then be what, you know, represents you, because you need to learn, like, the the material you start off with is not going to be what you look back on necessarily and think, you know, think is, defines you now, so, um, hence why they are no longer available to the public. (laughs) Uh, what what were the demos like? Are they similar to the only song that you have up on Spotify in A? They are and they aren't. I think the first thing that I would say is that they're very rough and ready. Like, I wouldn't be the most polished home demo recorder. Um, so in terms of quality, like sound quality, they wouldn't be amazing. Um, but I don't know. Like, I have one or two songs that maybe even lyrically, I think, were a bit, not immature, but less developed than I feel like I am now. Um, Like some of the songs, I kind of look back at what they were about and I think, okay, that was of a time and place, but I don't really think there's much, as much substance there as maybe I would deem some of the material that I'm writing now. Um, I think in terms of how they sound instrumentally, I wouldn't necessarily have a lot of qualms with them. But um, I think it's the whole package. So when you listen back to a demo, 
I don't know if I would pluck out certain bits of material and bring it to, to new material now, but like it's it's an archive. An archive is there to dip in and out of. So I think I do. I do listen to one or two of the oldies every once in a while. Um, yeah, just just to, to remind myself of, of the journey. And like to see, like, can you rework it? And have you come far enough to actually be able to adapt it into like the next thing? I think I kind of leave them in the past somewhat. Like, like I was just saying, like they're kind of of a time and place sometimes lyrically, and even the music. That it might be a case that I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really done it yet, so to speak. Like, I haven't necessarily gone back to an old song and thought, oh, that's a riff that I might actually steal. Because um, my my phone is just full of voice memos currently of me just sitting and you know recording little nuggets of of music. So. I'm kind of I'm that's the most recent archive that I'm dipping into at the moment not necessarily the one of like four or five years ago okay and so like is the diary project just you like when you're recording the new stuff is it 100% you or are you working with like a little team now of people I'm I'm getting well recording and live are still I'm treating them quite differently or separately at the moment um so in a is obviously um just me and it's one track and recorded live so to speak so it's very true to the way that I perform um and I think going forward I'm kind of sticking to my guns um in the sense that you know I am a live performer the improvisatory element of my music is very important so I have without giving too much away my plan is to record more things that are quite similar to any um just in how they're recorded so staying true to how something is performed live and doing it in one take um, and my plan is to have something out by the end of the year, and it may involve more than just me. So diary, diary in terms of you know writing is going to be me, but I'm getting getting more people in to broaden the sound. And just mentioning um, like the improvisation part of your uh, music, you're playing Twelve Points Festival in Dublin in yes. September, and it in an improvised music kind of festival. That sounds like it's going to be uh, pretty good. I'm very excited. I'm going to be in very uh, intimidating company. That festival is amazing and it's, I'm very, very grateful to be a part of it. Um, because I'm sure you're aware of the premise that it's kind of 12 artists or bands from 12 different countries. So um, no pressure or anything, but I'll be the, the Irish contingent. So I'll be uh, one of the 12 performing um, throughout, I think it's four nights in total. And at the beginning of September, so I'm really excited, and to see all the other acts as well. Um, and I think there'll be some jamming opportunities, so I'll get to whip out the violin and perform with some of them. So, like, do you go in clean, like, uh, for an improvised music set? Are you going in with like, I don't even know what the first note is that I'm going to play? I think it's it's restricted improv. So, I think you're always informed by a mood, like a mood, or even something that's worked before. Um, so for example, I'll go in with like a structure, I'll have an idea of even just like the key I might start in and then the structurally, like what kind of sections I'm going to incorporate in the song. So, um, in the last few gigs I've done, actually, I've done a, a plucked piece, um, which I really like. Um, it's kind of, I remember doing one maybe a year ago and just for some reason didn't kind of pick it up again. But, um, I think it was because I did a gig recently and the audience were so quiet so it was really lovely because I could play around with dynamics a lot more. And I just improvised like a little plucked riff on the violin. And then once I had that riff down, I just added layers on top. Um, 
and because of the restrictions of the loop pedal even there's certain things you can and can't do but uh it was fun playing around with like just expectation from the audience I guess because as you build and build and build people expect it to just keep getting louder or to cut completely and yeah I just played around with that a little bit and so you know that that happening once in a gig you remember that the next time you play and you think oh that actually might be a nice structure to revisit so let me just put down another completely kind of plucked riff and see what happens after. So that that's how that's how the magic happens. <laughs> yeah, like it's informed. I don't think again, like there's only so much you can do with the materials you have. And you know, I, I play with effects, but I don't have that many in front of me. So there's combinations that you can try with each performance and some oh <laughs> this will I said this to my friend at lunch today and she laughed at my face. Um, I actually decided I'd play a bit of flute in a gig that I did recently. So I just whipped out the flute and looped a bit of trills uh, above some of the violin. And my friend was like, of course you did. Of course you just brought a flute to to performance. And I was like, why not? That would be fun. Um, So that was something I added recently, just for textural kind of interest. It was fun. (laughs) <laughs> I, I was wondering like do you play trad music at all because I always think of like improvised music in terms of like in an Irish tradition like trad music obviously like is it something that you've uh, dabbled in or wanted to I think I'm influenced by it definitely um, like the the structures of certain traditional like pieces like the way that you would create a drone and the way that you would use like effects or not even effects like little embellishments like there's the little kind of trills and um stylistic elements of trad that I definitely like using but it's kind of funny because I I didn't grow up in Ireland um so I didn't really have my mom's gonna kill me now but because she's Irish and is from a very um kind of Irish traditional music influenced background herself but um it wasn't really part of my upbringing so I was classically trained and was involved in a lot of orchestral music um so it's it's not, it doesn't come as naturally to me, we'll say, because it's a different way of playing, you know, playing the fiddle and playing the violin are different things. Um, so I, I'm definitely influenced by the music and I have a huge appreciation for it. Um, but it, it's, it's a funny one for me just because it wasn't necessary on my ear growing up and it wasn't in my living room growing up, you know, like a, a lot of other artists. Let's talk about uh, where you did grow up. You grew up in Belgium up until like your age 10, is it? No, 17. I, I stayed there till college. Oh, 17. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. My mum my moved to Brussels in her 20s, so she's been living there a long, long time now. And so I was born and raised there, and um, I was just, I was influenced by the music she had on the house. She's an avid classical music enthusiast, um, but also choral music specifically. Um, and I guess it was funny, when I was, when I was younger, um, the music I was listening to was predominantly the music that I was performing because I, you know, I had chamber orchestra on a Wednesday, I had orchestra on a Friday, I had violin lesson on a Thursday, I had choir on a Monday, and every second Sunday I had like a group violin workshop with my teacher and her other pupils. So like my week to week was very uh, music heavy, and I'm, you know, I'm so thankful to my mum for uh, putting me in that in in the, in all those different uh, positions to be able to do all that when I was younger, um, and I think that would have been what I associated music with. It was performance when I was younger. Um, and as I, as I became an adolescent and started, you know, uh, bonding with people over music, like bonding with friends, um, I was definitely influenced by my other friends' musical taste. 
Um, so I went through a bit of a punk phase, <laughs> um, which is kind of very funny to have on the uh, on the on the bench next to the classical music. But um, yeah, that was that was definitely once I hit kind of fourteen, fifteen. It was very because uh, I'm a, I'm an only child, so I didn't necessarily have older siblings uh, to influence my taste. So um, it was definitely my my friends who uh, contributed to that. And so you moved to Ireland for college, was it or? Yeah, um, yeah. I applied. I applied for the CAO and I applied for UCAS as well. And I feel kind of bad because I got into Manchester University and left it very late to tell them that I actually wasn't going. Um, so they thought I got the freshers' week pack, and they they were like, "Oh, so are you looking forward to your music and drama course?" And then I just send an email and be like, "Oh, um, I'm actually going to go to Dublin. I'm really, really sorry for not telling you." Um, yeah, that was that was poor form. But uh, yeah, I. Uh, submitted to go to a few places, but I ended up um, picking Trinity um, and doing music and drama. So I ended up doing music for four years, but drama for three. So I, I majored in, in music. Cool. Did you uh, enjoy it? Was it a good? Was it a good old course? Oh yeah. Uh, well, yes, yes and no. I met amazing people who I have worked with, you know, um, since then, um, and the societies and that I got to be a part of. Uh, very much formed my my interest post college. Um, like I was heavily involved in Trinity Orchestra and singers, like the choir choir society, and it was it kind of became a kind of an extension of all the activities I'd been doing at school. Um, like in school, I was a good student, but everything I enjoyed was extracurricular, and I think college was similar because even though even though I picked music and drama, which are two things I'm passionate about. The music course is quite academic, and composition I, I really really enjoyed. Like that was my uh, my major within the music degree, and I went on to do a master's in that. So writing writing music was something that fascinated me, and I began to began to love. Um, but everything else was the performance based things, and they were all outside of the classroom. Okay, it, actually, just speaking of like the composition side of stuff, when you're working with other musicians who like might not read compositions, does that like make a difference to you? Is it kind of like a little frustrating? Does it slow down the process at all? Not necessarily. Um, well, it depends what the context is because if I'm writing music, most of the time the situations where I found myself doing that, the the people who will need to perform it are are able to read notation. Um, so it might be that, you know, there's uh, a commission that involves writing for choir um, or, or it's, you know, a small chamber ensemble, but they, they will all be able to read. Um, I think what's been interesting now with diary material is that um, now that I'm, I'm kind of starting to add more people um, to the project, there are some that read notation and some that don't. But it's a case of just exporting, you know, sound files and... Um, sending people demos and and just what and adapting to whatever way that they learn the music because some people do it by ear and some people do it by reading but there's ways that you can adapt the way that you write it um, to to kind of find the language that suits so to speak to to work with people. And so where did uh, David Tapley and Tandem Felix come into all this? Ah, the infamous David Tapley. Um, so I met David uh, in college through Trini Orchestra projects he was one of the singers um, and a lovely friendship blossomed and we had a performance well tandem did um, with actually no the first the first thing that came across was um, 
Dave wanted to record strings for a tandem EP called Popcorn. And he asked myself, as well as three other people, to come to go into studio and to record. Um, so that, for me, was a fun thing to do, because I hadn't necessarily worked with many bands or musicians up until then. Um, so after having recorded that, um, Dave had a 10 Days in Dublin performance, um, and he it was uh, Tan and Felix performing with an octet. So eight string uh, players and and Dave on vocals and guitar. And that was really fun. So that was another opportunity to play more of the Tandem Felix material. Um, but then after a while, I think just the way Dave wanted to write for Tandem Felix, he felt like the violin or string element might be a bit more, uh, not even necessary, but might be something he wants to explore a bit further. So then I kind of got the call from him um, where he asked, you know, well, do you want to actually be in the band? Do you want to play violin with us? Um, and not just be like a session musician that every so once in a while records with Tanner Felix, but actually be in the band. And again, I hadn't been in a band at all. Um, I'd only been in ensembles um, and just kind of done session work. So I was like, yeah, this sounds cool. <laughs> I'd be up for that. And, um, and from day one, Dave's been great because he's kind of let me just be, you know, you do you kind of thing. He's just let me be me. And um, we, we figure out lines that I would play in certain riffs, but he kind of let me just play um, in the context of the songs that he's written. So, yeah, and then the rest was history, really. I think some people, then I got to know a lot of people through playing with Tan and Felix. Um, so different circles of friends opened up to me and then through that, different working opportunities. Uh, and obviously Paddy, Paddy Hanna as well, who's come along, he released uh, Frankly, I Mutate earlier this year, who I've been... Uh, banging the ear off everybody to saying that like it's one of my favorite albums of the year and you did the orchestration on it was it yeah well string the the string parts so um that that was good fun um I went in to kind of work with Daniel Fox and Paddy Hannum we like the way that everything was figured out was um we just were in a rehearsal space together and Paddy and Dan would have specific lines that they had in mind for the strings like it would be a riff like for example in bad boys um you know there's that very specific riff that you hear in the violin and that that you know i didn't write that was paddy and dan being like this is what we'd like to do in the strings um so it was it was fun because i think it was two evenings of me just listening to the demos where they were at with the two boys and then kind of just singing at me and i'd be there like playing along figuring out you know where the violin could go and just having like my phone recording the whole thing. So then I'd have these these recordings that I would take home with me and figure out the main line and then kind of uh, thicken it out into four parts from that. So there's a good like nine tunes, I think, that have strings um, on, on the album, so the majority of it. But uh, yeah, it was fun then to just like take the ideas that the boys had and just layer them into kind of lush string section. And has it been fun playing with Paddy as well and playing with um, the guys because Daniel is in the in the Paddy live band as well another, and another couple of the girl band guys too. Is it kind of like more hands-off, I suppose, than you would be with Tandem Felix? Not really. Um, no, I'm playing just as much. Maybe <laughs> maybe there's something I don't know and David Taffy's going to listen to this and be like, Ada, yeah, you really play too much. You need to play less because, okay, I know I said you do you, but like, seriously. 
So <laughs> I might be getting a, a stern phone call. But um, no, sure. Again, just tied into what I was saying. Like, there's so many string parts in the the songs, um, specifically for Frankly on New Tape, but even it, for the previous Patty Hanna songs, like we worked out string parts that work with um, with material that didn't necessarily have strings on it in its first instance. But um, yeah, I'm never really twiddling my thumbs, and they're great fun to play with. Um, there's a lot of vibing off the key, the keys, and and the the guitar as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of fun to be had creatively. And so, like, you're already, we've talked about, like, so much stuff that you do with the music. Like, what else, what other types of music do you do uh, that we haven't talked about? Like, I was wondering, do you do stuff like shape note singing? No, I haven't done that. I don't know if I'd be any good at that. I sing in a choir, though. Um, I sing in a lovely all-female choir called Dulciana. And that's been a great musical outlet for me, because now that I'm starting to sing with Diary, I think you, you naturally kind of uh, sing in a comfortable range for your voice. Um, so the way that I write the songs are, you know, of a certain certain range. Um, and every time I go to choir once every Monday, and I think it's an amazing thing for a vocalist to do to, to participate with a choir because it's great to train your ear. Like you have to listen uh, continuously to all the parts around you um, to make sure that your pitch is on point and, it's just, it's very, it's, it's musical learning, you know, you're, you're kind of seeing these really well written pieces and um, maybe subconsciously learning a lot from them by performing them. Um, and it definitely uh, extends my range. Like when I go into choir, the conductor <laughs> tends to laugh at me because we'll do a warm up and everyone in the room will be hitting like top D's. Um, if not, if, if not higher. And then as soon as we go to, to sing a piece and everyone's kind of choosing their part, she'll look at me and be like, soprano one, which is the highest part. And I'm like, no, 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 I can't sing those notes. And she's like, you just hit a top D in rehearsal. So I think it's, it's kind of affirming of your ability um, to, to go and sing in a choral capacity because it just reminds you that you've so much more in your toolbox. Um, so yeah, I really, I really enjoy that, um, and the material we we play is great, or we sing is great. And so, like the rest of your summer is really, really busy. You were playing the Ruby sessions uh, earlier this week, as we're talking. You're doing loads of festivals, Connellys of Lep with uh, E Vagabonds for Cunis, and you're also playing Whelan's. Uh, what's the name of the? We've only just begun festival in Whelan's. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. That's going to be great. That's a that's a busy schedule. It is. Um, August is going to be pretty full, but um, yeah, every weekend is kind of, there. there's at least one musical thing going on, but it's all, I'm lucky to be in that position really, like I'm very, very lucky. Um, and again, what I was saying to you before about, you know, last year I only really knew what I was doing gig to gig um, and, you know, someone would come see me and ask, oh, do you want to do this thing? And then luckily someone would also come to that and ask me to do something else. But now I'm in a position where I, I kind of have to book or think about scheduling, you know, things far in advance. So I'm kind of looking at early 2019 now. So it's it's fun. It's 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 just it's a bit more. It's it's daunting, but it's affirming of like, okay, this is going in a good direction because otherwise, I'd be hearing the tumbleweeds and nobody calling the phone. <laughs> so um, it's it's really really. Um, again, I can't. I sound like a what's a, what's an animal that repeat? Oh, um, oh. 
a parrot. There you go. I was like, what's an animal that repeats itself loads? <laughs> okay, I sound like a parrot by just saying that I'm grateful, grateful, grateful. But I really am. So, um, yeah, it's great to be busy. Well, I suppose it's time for us to wait for it. Stop parroting on. And uh, <laughs> I guess I guess we'll uh, call it quits here. Thanks a lot for talking and thanks. Right. And good luck for the rest of your summer and year. Thank you so much. Hopefully see you at the